Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I'm re- we're recording remotely, but like we're still in town. So I am in my office, which I, I've never recorded in this office before. And I'm right over like a big square that gets pretty noisy. So if you hear ambulance behind me, don't be alarmed. I'm okay. It's just I'm over like a very noisy square where like things are always happening. And I am recording from my house where I have my co-pilot, Mr. Wally, uh, golden retriever pollster extraordinaire. And he is doing a little snoozle about two feet from me. But he can be, he is his most vocal when he is sleeping. So the odds that he begins having dreams where he kind of starts like yelping and chasing a squirrel or whatever, non-zero probability. So if you start hearing like strange animal noises, (laughs) that's just Wally having a dream. (laughs) What do you think he dreams about? Do you think he dreams about like cheeseburgers and like I mean, I hope it's happy dreams. I hope it's... He's just chasing squirrels or he's having dog park dreams. I really hope, I mean, we don't know Wally's backstory. We know that there was a time when he was, you know, he his life was not as happy and cushy as it is now. So I'm like, <laughs> I, I hope it's happy dreams and not like tr- like trauma dreams. Because um, he really makes like, you know, sometimes like barking and snarling noises like in his dreams. I'm like, I hope he's not like fighting someone. <laughs> Because dreams, this is heartbreaking. And his dreams, like, I have to get to Kristen. I have to get to Kristen. So I, I hope it's not, like, lingering like, effects of trauma, and it's just, like, him being like, I would like to get the acorn from the squirrel. So, but yeah. if you hear weird animal noises, that's that's Wally. I think all this is probably a lot more complicated than Wally's actual dream, which is, like, blue or something, or just, you know, a smell. <laughs> just a single smell. But, he, no, he, like, moves his paws and stuff, too. Like, yeah. he's trying to run towards something so it's 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 really amusing and cute to watch but also like a little heartbreaking because I worry I'm like I hope he's not having a nightmare I'm just thinking of the people who are like dog sleep analysts (laughs) but anyway that's probably another show oh I've googled it they exist (laughs) they exist (laughs) okay well what are the top lines the polls exist this week uh that we we're looking at 2020 watch there's some new polling about the general that is fairly bad news for for Trump. Um, job approval numbers coming out from CNN that are also not not great. Um, the Dem primary relatively unchanged, but we'll take a check in on how that's looking. The issue of the week we're going to dive into is it has been 18 years since September 11th, 2001. We're going to look at how attitudes have shifted on things like Afghanistan, terrorism. We're also going to take a look at some of the polling that came out in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. For those who may have been too young to remember it, um, just sort of to give a picture of what was it like right after 9-11 as we were deciding how do we respond to terrorism, what do we do about Afghanistan, and more. And then we'll wrap the show by talking about polling around UFOs. Do you believe? Do you want to believe? Uh, We'll find out what percentage of Americans think UFOs are fact, not fiction. Cool. Right. Who needs credits on We have Gallup for something to really entertain us at the end of the show. Um, So first, there have been... Some, you know, a, a slew of 
a flurry of, I, I don't know what the right term is, um, but a group of less good polls for the president in the last you know, week or so, um, you have his approval rating uh, has gotten a bit worse. His disapproved rating is a, an average of 54. His approval rating is at 43. I mean, that's consistent with where it's been, but it seems to be at a kind of low point for the, compared to the last stretch of time, not his historic low, but low for the last little bit. And you see a similar uh, sign of his vulnerability in head-to-heads. And this is Washington Post and ABC, which came out with uh, its poll um, this morning that shows Trump in the, you know, 40, low to mid-40 range in a variety of matchups to some of the uh, dem- potential, uh, some of the Democratic candidates, whether it's Trump versus Biden, where he's 40 to 55, Trump versus Sanders, 43 to 52, Trump versus Warren, 44 to 51, versus Harris, 43 to 50. I mean, these numbers are really more similar than they are different. 43 to 47, Trump versus Buttigieg. And um, there are a couple things, I think, to note with looking at these numbers. I mean, one is just how well-known the Democratic candidates are. So rather than looking at like, ah, this means that Biden is this and Warren is that and Buttigieg is something else, um, there are real differences in how well-known the candidates are that I think a lot of these numbers are really about Trump than about how people are evaluating one Democratic candidate over another. Um, and then the other thing that the Washington Post write-up mentioned is uh, how Trump is doing with women, particularly with non-college white women, which were a key uh, place where Trump could really do well. He you know, he had an advantage in 2016 uh, with that audience, and it's been you know, a key swing group and a key focus of, you know, we've talked about this before, a key place where, you know, Democrats and Republicans have really done a lot of outreach over the last few years. Um, but in in the latest poll, uh, this group disapproves of Trump. Um, he's at best even with this group against the different Democratic challengers. Um, so it's a group where, at least in this poll, he's struggling. And that, I think, is part of what we're seeing in the overall numbers. One thing that I just want to flag, if any of our friends at Real Clear Politics are listening to the show, um, I remember CNN's poll came out yesterday. I was in an airport, so I was watching lots of soundless CNN. Um, and they had the president's job approval at 39%. And when I'm looking at the cross tabs that they've released from SSRS, it says 39%. Yet on Real Clear Politics, they have logged it as 42%. So I think it's because they're looking at the... RV sample and maybe not adults or something like that. Um, but anyhow, it's so there's there's a little bit of a difference there, I guess. That's sort of how you're coming to the different like you know baseline numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but CNN is reporting their finding as 39% approve overall, um, and that that being within their own poll, a, a, a not insignificant drop. The, the number that stuck out to me was they were also reporting that his job approval on the economy, which has tended to be about 10 points higher than his overall job approval, remains about 10 points higher than his overall job approval. Here, it's it's 48% approve, 47% disapprove on the economy. But that's, uh, that's a decline for him. I mean, back in March, he was sort of plus nine on the economy. So it's even though, you know, there are a variety of indicators like 
the unemployment rate, et cetera, that would suggest the economy is doing quite well. Um, and that, you know, if you were doing a fundamentals model about this race, Trump would be in great shape for re-election purely based on the economy. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting data asking people, okay, not just how do you feel about the economy at the moment, but what do you think it's going to be like six months or a year from now? And people are very worried that we are like on the edge of the economy getting much worse. And so those expectations, I think, are sort of eating into Trump. What had been a bright spot in the polling for him around the economy now looks a, a little bit weaker in, in this CNN polling. Um, so that's just, I think, for me, that the number that I am keeping an eye on is those economy job approval numbers are the thing that could potentially keep him afloat with some of those swing voters who may not love the tweets. Um, but depending on who the Democratic nominee is, if they say, well, you know, but I like the economy, if, if, if that advantage goes away, that spells big potential uh, problems for Trump. And also in that CNN poll, you know, that question they ask, has Trump created changes? And have those changes been for the better or the worse? I mean, one of the things that was a rationale for voting for Donald Trump was even if you didn't like him, you thought, well, he'll bring about change. And 80% of Americans do say that he has created change, but only a third of Americans think he has changed things for the better. 45% say he has changed things for the worse. And that's a, a, a shift in the wrong direction from him, even just from like late January, early February, where his numbers overall weren't great around then. That was sort of the, uh, you were just coming off of the government shutdown. Um, you know, that wasn't like a bright polling moment for the president. But even then, he only had 37% saying he's made changes for the worse. Um, so that number is also headed in the wrong direction for him. I mean, if you are the type of person that wanted change, Trump being sort of a, a wild card, blank slate, who knows what he's going to be. I mean, now Trump's not a mystery anymore. So you kind of lose the advantage of, well, he's the like random bonus role. Let's just see how this goes. Like, you now know what a Trump presidency looks like for better or worse. Um, so the whole, if you want change, do you stick with Trump is like, that's a, just a much more complicated proposition now. Yeah. And if you may remember longtime listeners who, who heard our interview with uh, Trump pollster Tony Fabrizio and Clinton pollster Joel Benenson, they both asked, they both said that they asked a version of this question in their polling too. Like, is he going to create change? And is that going to be good change or bad change? You know, the predicting into the future. Um, and you also have a smaller number who say now compared to past polls, he hasn't created any changes. You have 17% said now he hasn't really, he hasn't really created any real changes. Um, it used to be a little bit higher, not a lot higher. I don't want to make too much. I mean, these differences are, you know, not super, super dramatic. They're just, you know, they, they are part of, an overall trend where the numbers are not looking great in two different polls. And usually when you have a poll where the top line numbers show something not going as well, the other numbers beneath the surface on things like the economy or the reelect, which we don't have in here, but it was also, you know, showed tough numbers for the president. I mean, all those numbers usually move together. Rarely will like one number move in like one direction considerably and then another, you know, kind of key indicator will move in another direction considerably. Usually they all, you know, move a little bit together. Maybe there's something happening beneath the surface or there's one particular you know, outlier because there's something related to something that happened. But, you know, we're seeing two polls that both have, you know, tough numbers from the president for the president at the top of, you know, sort of the top line figures and some of the beneath the surface indicators in both polls. 
The other question that they ask um, that sort of pertains to the uh, the change issue is about has have they kept their promises as president? Um, so this question is one that has been asked not just about Donald Trump, but was asked about uh, Barack Obama, was asked about George W. Bush, was asked about Bill Clinton. So we have a lot of really interesting longer term trend data on this from the CNN poll. And it, it, the trends are for CNN ORC for the sort of older numbers. But right now, only 43% of Americans think Donald Trump is doing a good job keeping important promises he made during the campaign. 51% say poor job. And that's a big drop off, you know, now being sort of negative eight on that question. He was plus 10 on that question in October of last year, where 52% said he was doing a good job of keeping promises. Didn't mean that you you liked what those promises were, but he was, he was following through on them. 42% said poor job. For... Other presidents, um, you know, Barack Obama was also, he, he was only ever underwater on this question one time when they asked in January of 2010. Um, but, you know, George W. Bush in 2002, July of 2002, he was at 53% good job, 32% poor job. Bill Clinton was had a pretty rough go of it on this metric um, during the sort of the, the 93 to 94 portion of his presidency. Um, underwater by 10 or more points on this question. Um, but this is not, this is the lowest uh, that Donald Trump has seen in a little while. Um, the worst figure he had was net negative 15 on this in November 2017. But he had bounced back and was in better position on, is he keeping his promises? And that has begun to slide. Yep, yep. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's tough numbers for the president, no matter how you look at it. And, and there's been a lot of coverage to that fact. And I saw... You know, there's also some folks who've been writing stories like, don't count the president out. You know, don't assume he can't win again. Don't be, you know, don't be complacent. A lot more articles that that sort of, you know, wag a finger at people for being complacent than I see articles where people are being complacent, you know, where people are counting the president out. I mean, I think, you know, you, you see a lot of people really focusing on these numbers. It's obviously, early, you know, I'm surprised that there are different outlets and aggregators sort of carefully looking at LV versus RV because we're so far out. It's really, you know, it's it's hard to really think through what the electorate's going to look like in these kind of national polls at this stage, you know, is, is not necessarily predictive as much as it is just looking at a kind of baseline of where we are. Um, but still, regardless of how you look at it, these, these are tough numbers. And I think, you know, people take, you know, people should still obviously not be complacent, but it's ter- certainly a sign of some real, you know, tough sledding in the in the short term. Uh, one other thing just to flag is that, uh, and, and we don't have a ton we're going to talk about, about the North Carolina 9 um, special election, but happened on uh, Tuesday night, the uh, Republican candidate, this was a, a Republican seat, one that Trump won by a fair amount. The reason why this uh, race is sort of happening is because there were uh, some improper uh, collection of absentee ballots that sort of said, look, we've got to just redo this whole race again. Um, the Republican candidate ultimately won, and in the like, and this is a district that includes like pieces of the, the Charlotte suburbs. And mm-hmm. so, if you're watching, you know, political data Twitter uh, as the returns were coming in, the big observation was that the Democrat was doing uh, quite well in the sorts of pieces of the district that were the kind of suburban, you know, the Charlotte suburbs 
is exactly the type of place that 10, 15 years ago, Republicans would have crushed, would have done so great in. And now those pieces of the district are where Democrats are really making gains. However, the reason the Republican was able to sort of hang on is that in the more rural parts of the district, places where they would still vote for kind of a Southern Democrat, um, these are now folks that are voting in big numbers for Republican candidates. Be, they may even be sort of still registered as Democrats, but they're behaving like Republicans. And so this little special election, while you never want to read too, too much into the results of a special election because they're so strange, they have bajillions of dollars dumped into them, which often does not happen in individual congressional races. I mean, there's just all sorts of strangeness, but that this, if you look at it on like a, a geographic basis, this special election shows this rural suburban divide really growing. Does that mean that a state like Texas, which is quite suburban, uh, you know, is in more danger of, of going democratic? But does it also mean that some of these blue, uh, blue wall states, you know, the red, the areas that became red for Trump are only going to get redder this time around? Remains to be seen, but that's, I think that's the one big interesting, if you're a political data nerd, takeaway from North Carolina 9. The poll said it was going to be close. It was close. Right. Um, but the ge- the geography of how it wound up being close is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think, and you know, and folks will be continuing to sort of process the data and, and analyze it. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, it's better to... It's better to win than to lose when we're looking at congressional races um, for either side, right? Obviously, Republicans win. They're probably, you know, feeling good about that. Um, it's a seat that I think went 12 points for Trump. And is my understanding, and I may, I, I hope I have this right, is more Republican than any of the pickups that, that the the new pickups uh, in 2018, um, which, you know, could erase that close. Um, other districts like it, if they were that close or, you know, bro- if some of them broke, you know, in a democratic way, then then that's obviously could be meaningful. So um, just noting that, but obviously it's, you know, it was a, it was something that people were watching on Twitter for a lot longer than you typically see. And the polls stayed open a little bit longer than expected. So, um, so it was something that carried on a little bit longer than, than the typical House race election night calling. Well, I was very grateful for the extensive coverage of this because I was on a very long and very delayed flight out of uh, San Francisco's airport yesterday. (laughs) So this was like, this gave me something to like pass the time because there's a run, there's at least one runway closed at San Francisco's airport because they have to like repave it because the last time they repaved it, it didn't really work and was like cracking under the weight of planes. Um, so not great. So like if you're uh, thoughts and prayers to any pollsters listeners who are trying to go in or out of uh, San Francisco's airport. I will say, though, before we go to a quick break, while I was in San Francisco, I was visiting one of my clients um, that was out there and um, was approached by someone who's sort of from former Obama administration uh, guy who came up and said, I love your podcast. Um, and so it, it always warms my heart when folks sort of out in the wild come up and introduce themselves and oh, that's good. Uh, say they're pollsters listeners. I always love that. <laughs> that, is, that is super fun. I am. Um, so I think I think John Hagner listens to the show. So he's a you know data guy on the on the left. And he tweeted out, he's like, I am on a flight and I'm paying $10 to have Wi-Fi so I can watch coverage because I have a brain disease, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was funny. Just like, I need to just watch people talk about something that will eventually reveal itself, but I need the real time Twitter back and forth. And this is a show I want to pay for, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm going to 
the movies, and the movie is North Carolina people, nine people tweeting <laughs> time North Carolina results. You know. Um, okay, so let's take a quick. But let's just talk. We have just one brief point on the primary, and then we'll take a break and go into our long discussion. But. You know, we're not going to talk too much about the primary. There's a debate tomorrow night. We're recording on Wednesday. There's a debate on Thursday. I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot of change since in the last week. If you look at the primary tracker, I mean, it's pretty stable. Yeah, not a whole lot happening there. I I remain fascinated by, you know, you mentioned earlier, you've got all these ballot matchups, Trump versus Biden. Um, Trump versus Sanders, Trump versus Warren. There's so much evidence that Democrats care a lot about electability. Um, But even though, you know, there's tons of reporting on like, oh, Biden had more gaffes this week. Biden had more gaffes this week. It just doesn't seem to be moving his numbers at all. Um, And so this this is a pretty stable race. But we'll see after this week's debate where the field has been temporarily shrunken down to 10 will be on the stage. Doesn't mean only 10 are still in and still possible to qualify for later debates but you know the last round of debates didn't change a ton so we'll see if this this round is different yes okay great so now we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back to our issue deep dive are you good with people maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers well then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. All right, we're back. So today we are recording this on September 11th. Uh, 2019. And that puts us exactly 18 years um, out from September 11th, 2001. This sort of marks like the first time September 11th has been like in the like, I am over half a lifetime away from 9-11 officially this year, because I was 17. um, When I was in high school, when September 11th happened, I was in history class, my favorite history teacher, like we put on the TV, and then after the towers fell, turned off the TV, because it was a little traumatic for for us. Uh, But then like he turned it into a lesson. Um, But it is fascinating to me now, I mean, you have, because we are 18 years out from September 11th, there are people who are going to be eligible to vote in the next election who weren't alive during September 11th. Um, And so we thought it would be interesting today to do a little look back on what did the polls look like in the immediate aftermath of 9-11? And then how have things changed in terms of public opinion around the war in Afghanistan, around terrorism? You also this week had the news where um, John Ambassador John Bolton um, was let go, fired, resigned, remains somewhat unclear. Uh, Employment status changed. Employment status changed. A, A life event that would allow you to enroll in healthcare uh, <laughs> outside the regular enrollment period. I don't think that was in any of his tweets to no. <laughs> text to reporters. Uh, a significant life event. Um, Good news. I'm joining. I'm getting on the exchange. <laughs> um, but uh so, you know, this is this is a big, this is all, and plus you also had the news breaking, I believe it was last weekend. Time is kind of a blur that the Taliban may have been coming to Camp David to have peace talks, which blows my mind. 
but we don't have polling on any of this. We don't have polling on any of this. So we're, we're that's why we're doing a bit of like a historical look back at what did the polling look like in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and then what how have things changed since then? Um, the first big thing, I actually just saw this on Twitter as we sat down to record. Ariel Edwards-Levy is sort of retweeting the things that she dug up last year about this. And she found a tweet where she went through CBS's polling. They called people um, right after September 11th. And she says, called people the night of September 11th um, and asked them what their views were on, like, how did they feel when they first heard the attacks? And her tweet says, I often gripe about coding verbatims being the worst, but calling people the night of September 11th and sorting out their responses between numb, devastated, in disbelief had to be an actual nightmare. I cannot fathom what it would be like to be one of the the folks working in a call center. And you've got to call dozens and dozens of people and ask them this question. Like, what, what would that have been like? Like, that's an interview I would love to do. To interview someone who was working in a call center who was fielding this CBS poll. Like, they, I just... The results are 35% gave a response that was somewhere in the neighborhood of shocked, stunned, or numb. 29% bad feelings in general. 16% devastated slash horrified. 2% violated, 3% no words can describe, 6% surreal disbelief, 1% concerned about the victims, and 7% other. How do you even come up with, like, the categories for I that? I know, I know. Th- that is, is just wild to me. I mean, they probably, I mean, they probably had to do this quickly, you know. They had to make some judgment calls. I mean, there's obviously overlap. With all open-ended things, there's overlap. But all of these are, you know, sometimes when you do an open-end, the, the categories are, you know, very clearly different. Is your top issue immigration or is it climate change? Like, those are different. Ca- I mean, these are all kind of adjacent to each other. They're all sort of, they're all pained feelings, right? So... Um, and how people phrase them may be different than what they mean, et cetera. So it's, and I, you know, also I'm, this is not to to critique it. I mean, I guess they're in the field, so they're asking, right? And the the stunned, I think, is interesting. You know, since it's so since it's that night, I don't know what this tells us analytically, but you know, they were in the field, and I think it's good to to hear people at the time. I would be fascinated to, if they still have these verbatims. You know, I'm. Sh- I don't know to what extent you had like word cloud technology back in, t- but I mean, you know, that would be. I, we took like, out like our stone tablet and we well, and a chisel, and I then mean, if we now, messed up, we went back to the quarry. <laughs> nowadays, it's very easy to take a bunch of text and just plunk it into. You know, I mean, yeah, that I, was the I, height of technology, and it did not exist then. No, but I mean, like, I, I so I assume you know you could do it. Did they have the technology? Was the wrong phrasing because right. obviously they had yes. the technology. You just could couldn't be, like do it in five seconds. Yeah, well, and was it a commonly done thing? Um, no, that would be a, you know a potentially interesting way to display this like devastating data. Um, the other thing that I, I thought was really interesting, so Gallup did a lot of polling in and around the sort of immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, and something that I, I think is, it always just strikes me, you know, whenever I'm looking at a presidential job approval chart and we're trying to get context for, okay, Trump is at day, you know, 600 of his presidency or 700 of his presidency. How does that stack up to past presidencies? And every time you pull up the chart of what George W. Bush's job approval looks like, there's this enormous spike um, 
around September 11th. Um, Gallup finding his job approval in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 to be 90%. It is, again, it's very hard to like wrap your mind around the idea of a president at all getting 90% job approval. Especially, I mean, again, if you if you don't remember 9-11, then you definitely don't remember the divisive election of 20, uh, 2000 with the recount and everything. Um, you know, Bush's job approval was in the like, you know, high 50s, which nowadays would be stellar job approval, but was like, meh, it's okay, you know, it's fine job approval, but then jumped up to 90% in that immediate aftermath. And then less than a month after 9-11, we began bombing Afghanistan. And Gallup went into the field that night. They went into the field for three hours on October 7th, 2001, to get a read on public opinion. What do people think about us bombing Afghanistan? And, you know, now, as we'll talk about in a minute, public opinion on the war in Afghanistan has really soured, has moved a lot over 18 years. Um, But at the time, I mean, you have to remember how angry and frustrated and just wanting to see justice served that Americans felt about what had happened. Um, And so 90%, the night that the bombing began, said that they approved of the U.S. taking military action in Afghanistan. 92% said they approved of the way Bush was handling the campaign against terrorism. And then they asked, would you favor or oppose if the U.S. took additional action to use ground troops? Because at the time it was just bombings. I don't think, I think it took a little bit longer for ground troops to be deployed. Um, You wound up seeing the day before the attack, uh, the day before we bombed, 67% said they'd favor ground troops. Once the bombing began, it went up to 77% said they would favor it. Um, And then this is the question that just stops me like dead in my tracks that this was these were the answer options that were given for this they said now that the united states has taken military action do you think the fighting in afghanistan will continue for a few weeks or less several months a year or two more than two years or no opinion so 10 percent of people said they thought we would just be there a few weeks or less we'd go in we'd kick some taliban butt we'd get out um 34% said several months. So you had 44% of America who did not even think we were going to be in Afghanistan for a year. Another 26% said we'd be there for a year or two. Only 22% said we'd be there for more than two years. More than two years. That was the top end estimate. And we have been there for now almost 18. This is wild to me. Like just to see that result and kind of know how the story ends is jaw-dropping yeah i mean public opinion polling i I do want to talk about sort of the worry about future attacks but this question of how people view afghanistan and the public opinion movement on it um you know there's tracking we went back and we looked we looked at you know at outlets that have asked this over time and you can see that people's views have changed they haven't changed radically but they've changed over time but you can also see and I don't, I don't know what this this says, right? But there haven't been that many polls on this, you know, considering how long this, you know, how long that we've been engaged in Afghanistan. Um, if you look for public polling on it, you won't find that much uh, that's recent, and you won't find that much, you know, in in the aggregate, considering you know what a what an undertaking it is. So I think that's you know public polling. 
you know, what is asked and what's not asked doesn't always completely reflect what people are thinking about. It reflects what news outlets want to talk about and what they think their, you know, what they think their coverage is going to be. Um, and, you know, the coverage and our public conversation is, you know, is, is not as extensive as our involvement in, in real life actually is. The other thing that I, I think is, you know, as we're going to look at these trend lines now of how is how is attitudes toward the war in Afghanistan changed over time? The other thing that's important to remember is, you know, again, we had 90% support behind let's go into Afghanistan um, at the beginning. Uh, there was a sense that there was a clear reason why, that the people who had done this to us needed to be held accountable, that we had very clear reasons for going there. And this, I think, led to even, you know, decades later, as we'll see, you still had in, you know, the in the, the late aughts and into the early 2010s, you still had pretty sort of rosy views of the war in Afghanistan, you know, as recently as, you know, 2011, uh, 10 years after the fact, you had majorities of both Republicans and Democrats saying the U.S. had mostly succeeded in achieving its goals in Afghanistan, feeling pretty good about things. Um, and, and there was this sense that between the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, Afghanistan was the quote unquote good war, that even if it wasn't going well, we were justified in having gone in, that we had the right reasons for doing it, we had been attacked, of course you're going to go in and of course you're going to try to bring these people to justice who did this to us where the war in Iraq was more like, well, was it really related to the war on terror? Were they really harboring al-Qaeda? Were, were they developing weapons of mass destruction? You know, this was a debate that unfolded and his, you know, years later, now the public opinion shows most people don't think that we were right to have gone into uh, Iraq. But that sort of unfolded much more quickly. And even during the Obama administration, you had that, that separation of like, Iraq is the bad war, we shouldn't have gone in and let's just try to get ourselves out versus Afghanistan, which was we were right to go in, let's try to make the best of what remains a tough situation. Nowadays, when you ask people how they feel about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, do you, when you ask people, do you think that the war in Iraq and Afghanistan will succeed or will fail? Back in 2011, 58% said they thought it will succeed. Nowadays, when you ask more as a like pr present to past tense, not in the future, what do you think will happen, but what has happened, only 35% say it has mostly succeeded. Um, Republicans, as of President, you know, once President Trump takes office, the, the partisan lines flip on this issue. When Obama was president, Democrats were more likely than Republicans to say the U.S. had succeeded in achieving its goals in Afghanistan. But for both parties, it was less than 50%. Once Trump takes office, that flips, and 48% of Republicans, 28% of Democrats say, we have succeeded in achieving our goals. I mean, it's just... But there wasn't much. There wasn't that much of a party difference in like 2010, 2011. You know, the party difference was a little bit smaller. Um, it's widened in the last yeah. few years, not just since Trump took office, but before. But there was a time while Obama was president where there wasn't a massive party difference here. Well, and and the, some of the more recent polling on this, um, you know, sort of shows. Uh, you know, back in 2006, 2008, if you ask people, do you think that the United States initial decision to use military force in Afghanistan was it the right decision or the wrong decision? Even in that's sort of separate from how do you think it's going? Do you think we should stay? You know, just do you looking back, 
do you think we made the right call? And again, at the time, 90% of people said they thought it was a good idea. Let's do it. They supported it. By the time you got to 2006, which was a time when sort of anti-war sentiment was, was really bubbling up even more, contributed to Republicans' significant losses in the midterms in 20, uh, 2006, even then you still had, you know, 69% in January 2006, uh, 61% in December 2006 saying, yes, this was the right decision. It's only as of September 2018 that you see less than half of Americans saying they thought it was the right decision to go into Afghanistan, but now it's only 45%. So it, it, I guess it's easy when you, if you think you're only going to be there for a year or two, as we saw from the polling, that's what people's expectations were about Afghanistan. We're going to be there. We're going to, you know, br bring justice. We're going to take down the Taliban and we're going to come home. 18 years later, we know that's not how the story ends. And so people's views on whether we should have done, gone in in the first place or not have changed. I wonder if you could go back in time and tell people, we're going to go in. Um, the, Afghanistan's going to get a new government, but it's never really going to be fully stable. And the Taliban are always going to kind of be there. Uh, causing problems, uh, attacking people, and trying to make a bid to reclaim the country. And eventually, 18 years from now, we're going to invite them to Camp David for peace talks. My mind remains blown about this. Um, how would you feel about that? Like, I, I wonder how many of that 90% would have said, oh, that's how the story ends? No, no, no. I'm, then I'm not okay with this. I, it's, it's hard to, it's just hard to imagine that America thought this is what they were signing up for, but it's also possible that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the frustration and anger people felt toward the Taliban for having harbored the people who did this to us, they would have said, I don't care. I don't care what the cost is. I want these people brought to justice. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know how people would have felt if they knew 18 years later that we would still be there with no real clear happy ending in sight. And, you know, Pew did something this summer, and I think we talked about it a little bit at the time, but it's worth revisiting while we're on the topic, um, uh, where they talked to veterans. And veterans have very similar views to adults overall. And they ask a little bit differently the question. It wasn't, um, you know, right decision or wrong decision. Uh, it was, you know, worth fighting or not worth fighting. And they asked about the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan separately. And veterans and adults felt you know, similarly, where about a majority to two, you know, to just before two thirds said um, not worth fighting and about a third, roughly a little over a third say worth fighting. Uh, this is, you know, whether we're talking about veterans or all adults and that's this summer. And the, there's not that much difference between the war in Iraq and, Af and war in Afghanistan. Let's just look at veterans here where 33% uh, of veterans thought it was worth uh, – Iraq was worth fighting and 38% of veterans thought Afghanistan, Afghanistan was worth fighting. Not a big difference. But if you look at the party breakout, there is a – you know, the difference really comes from Democratic veterans. Republican veterans feel the same about both uh, Democratic veterans, 15% of them – feel the war in Iraq was a, was worth fighting and 26% feel the war in Afghanistan was worth fighting. And that's, that's in June. Um, and with a slightly different question and showing a more negative response, not worth fighting, different than right decision, wrong decision. Cause that, that question, the right decision, wrong decision was, you know, do you think the initial decision to use military force was the right decision or wrong decision? I think can give you, you know, sounds sounds a little bit different. I could see how people might hear it differently. There are different surveys, but, you know, different question wording. Um, I could see how people would hear those a little bit differently. 
So then I think, you know, last but not least, you know, we've talked about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The other interesting data is how people have changed or not changed in their views of whether they think they are likely to personally be a victim of terrorism. And in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, how likely people thought it was that we would suffer another attack. So in that Gallup poll that they conducted, you know, the night of October 7th, 2001, this is something that fascinates me. And I... Again, being 17 at the time, I don't even fully remember exactly why these numbers would have changed the way they did. But they they went into the field 10 days after 9-11, so September 21st, and asked people, how likely do you think it is there will be further terrorist attacks over the next several weeks? And at the time, only 22% said very likely, though another 44% said somewhat likely. So you had a majority who thought it was likely, but only 22% said very likely. When they asked again October 7th, That had jumped to 41%, saying it was very likely that there would be further terrorist attacks. But the somewhat likely number stays the same, 42%. Is that because of the, I don't remember the timing of things like the anthrax attacks. Like, I don't don't fully recall exactly what all went down in those couple of weeks. Do you you think that number moved where people became much more convinced we were going to get attacked a couple weeks afterwards? Because oh, you know what? Of yeah, the anthrax, anthrax stuff, attacks. So the anthrax attacks. You might be right. September eighteenth, two thousand one to October 9th, two thousand one. So that, yeah. they would have started before that first question was asked. You know, they would have mm. begun. I mean, I guess maybe at the time. People no, but yeah, but maybe right. Maybe it hadn't fully caught on, or maybe it was just one. You know, I don't know, because there were there were several of them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that to me, yeah. that that's, that's like a pretty jarring shift. And I can't figure out, again, not having personal clear memories of what all was going on in the national headlines then. I, I, you know, I, I think, I mean, you also had, and I don't think it had started at that point, but you also had, you know, the White House issuing like, you know, different levels of alert at different times, right? And, and I don't think that that had started at that moment, but there were different times where they would issue an alert and there would be a kind of an increase in concern or worry. So Gallup asked two different questions. So the, the one that you're talking about, Kristen, had um, how likely is it that there will be further terrorist attacks in the United States so they could be happening anywhere? And then Gallup also asked and asked before 9-11, how worried are you that you or someone in your family will be a victim of terrorism? And so that's a little bit, to, and it's a scale of very worried. So that's how worried you are about you personally as opposed to how likely in the United States. So so different different measures, similar, of course, but, but different. Um, and by that metric, it, what's interesting to me, if you look at that trend line, and that goes back to the mid-90s, um, it had really kind of dropped into about a quarter feeling worried. Uh, this is percent very or somewhat worried. Um, and it spiked to 58% right around 9-11. And then it never totally went down. I mean, it fluctuated a lot, probably around some of those warnings that the White House would put out, it, where it would kind of, you know, bounce up and down in the kind of early, early 2000s. Um, and then after the Bush administration, it, it didn't, it, I mean, it's also was seemed like it was not asked as frequently and also didn't move as, wasn't, doesn't seem as volatile. But still, ultimately, while it looks like the number bounces around a little bit, it's still in this kind of narrow band of basically 40, 40 to 50, that after the spike from after 9-11, it 
went back down. It never goes back down to pre-9-11 numbers, um, particularly, and th- that's where it stays. Uh, it's now gone down to 42%, but it was at 51% right around 16. I don't know exactly what the date was of that, of that survey. Um, but it, it stays in this kind of basically the same band between f- approximately 40 and approximately 50%, feeling worried in some way about them personally. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we can talk a little bit about. Uh, feels like we're not, it's not a, as light a topic as normal, but it's definitely a strange one. We're going to look at some polling from Gallup with some more really long trend lines, but this time about UFOs and whether you think the government is telling us the truth about what's out there. So stay tuned. We'll come back after the break to look at some more long trend lines, but about some very different subject matter here on The Bolsters. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, so we're back. And, you know, Gallup is not always known for its, like, whimsical polling topics but this one is and i you know i I guess i shouldn't i mean maybe we shouldn't make light of it i don't know probably gonna find out how many of our listeners believe in ufos i think that's the moral of the story here (laughs) but um i was surprised to see that gallup had done some tracking on people's views toward ufos they released one you know one of their kind of analysis papers on this um or posts on this, and because they, they have a couple different questions about it. It's not even just one question. So, you know, the first question, and it just goes to show, like, how important, I mean, this is really a study in question wording and how important the frame of the question is to the responses that you get. Because here's where you have a very broad amount of consensus, right? In your opinions, does the U.S. government know more about UFOs than, it's, than it is telling us? And there, a majority say, yep. That's like, this is not a controversial position. 68% say yes now, and in 1996, 71% said yes. Unchanged. People feel the government knows more. It doesn't mean that they exist. It could just mean that they know more, that they're, you know, the government is, you know, maybe hiding is not the right phrase, but that the government has information in some way. Maybe they've done a study. Maybe they, you know, maybe they know that they don't exist. Maybe whatever it is, they know something that they have not shared. And that is a clear consensus position. What I don't know is if you ask this question about anything else other than UFOs, what would it say? In your opinion, does the government know more about like dog dreams than it is telling us? What would the answer be, Kristen? Would it be 68%? You know, like, does the government know more about jalapeno peppers than it's telling us? Like, I don't know, probably, right? They've done some studies. I mean, so 
it's like one of those, like, do you trust your member of Congress to do blank? And the answer is always no, right? So it's possible that this number would always be yes, no matter what we asked. But then they have a question about UFOs specifically. And there's like a two-part question here. So and here's the wording. We have a question about unidentified flying objects, also known as UFOs, which comes closer to your own view. Some UFOs have been alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or galaxies, or all UFO sightings can be explained by human activity on Earth or natural phenomenon. And then a follow-up, have you yourself ever seen anything you thought was a UFO? So about a third think that some UFOs are alien spacecraft, and about half of those have personally seen one. So thirty, uh, you know, 33% think some alien or th- some UFOs are alien spacecraft. 16% have personally seen one. So I would like to say that I have done some very important research to try to put the trend line data around this in context. Because when I saw that Gallup had asked in September of 1996, what did people think about the U.S. government telling us more about UFOs? Does the U.S. government know more than it is telling us? I immediately wanted to understand what in pop culture could have caused them to ask this question. And I found the answer. What is the answer? So there were a number. I, I This was my like middle school era of my life. So it was a time in my life when like going to the movies was a big deal. Like middle and high school, I have very clear memories of like all the movies I saw, good, bad, and ugly. And I remembered that the summers in middle school, there were three movies that were like a really big deal. One was Contact. Right. Contact came out in 1997. So Contact is not the film that sparked this discussion. The second film I checked was Men in Black. Men in Black also came out in 1997, so after this question was asked. So then the third film I checked, Independence Day, came out July 3rd, 1996. So it would have been the film that would have potentially sparked a national conversation about UFOs and aliens. And does the U.S. government know more than it's telling us? And I was very glad to piece together the timeline of what movie had to have sparked this national conversation that would have made Gallup ask this question. Maybe, but isn't there always, like, an alien contact? I mean, that's, you know, kind of human nature to just want to believe that there's something else is, you know, I mean, that's not human nature, I guess, but it's, like, movie Hollywood nature to revisit this conversation. I mean, there was one a couple years ago. What was the one where... She made, like, drawings. She was, like, a linguist who made drawings. for Anyway, so, I mean, I feel like this is not – it can't just be the mid-'90s movies, can it? I don't know. Maybe well, it just inspired somebody to brainstorm a gallop, and I was like, oh, great idea. Well, I mean, there are – look, like, you had the X-Files, and I've, I'm, like, pulling the X-Files timeline up. I believe the X-Files had been – yeah, like, the first couple of seasons – you know, the X-Files was on season four by the time this poll came out, right? So it, it's right. not as though, like – Independence Day introduced UFO. I mean, you had E.T., you had Close Encounter. I mean, so yes, it's always been a part of the the discussion. But I mean, the reason why they're asking about it now this summer, I think is because of the whole like the millennials and Gen Zers are going to storm Area 51 meme Mm. that was a thing on the internet this summer. (laughs) 
Um, so I'm assuming that is what has spot either that or that news story about like the Navy pilots who swear they saw something, but like the government's been covering. Anyhow, all I will say is I was just like, why in September of 1996 would Gallup have decided to ask this question? Like what was going on in the culture around then that would have made that the time they asked this question? Because it is always, some, you know, it's not new. And I believe it was the, in the film Independence Day that caused this uh, caused this question to be asked. Well, what hard hitting in- investigative research? From us <laughs> no, that's good. That's a good hypothesis. We don't know the answer. Maybe someone from Gallup will tweet us or write us about it. But um, uh, what was interesting is they asked some demographic. You know, they break this out by demographics, and people in the West are more likely to think. I think this is not surprising. Think some UFOs or alien spacecraft, and personally have seen one. Forty one percent of folks in the West compared to about a quarter of folks in the Midwest. Um, and uh, younger people, I don't know how this, you know, if this is something you covered in the in the selfie vote, but um, younger people are more likely to say that they think some UFOs or alien spacecrafts, not any more likely really to have personally seen one. Yeah, this was, so in the selfie vote, I don't think I cover UFOs specifically, but I do cover how like millennials are no less likely than older generations to believe in uh non-scientifically based stuff. So whether that's like more conventional religious views or do you believe in angels? Do you believe in heaven and hell, etc.? cetera? Um, there's a, if you are a lady magazine reader, there's a really interesting story in this, the September L where a writer goes and covers the like Hillsong church, which is a big like evangelical mega church. It's very popular among young people, especially like very online Instagram influencer type people, many celebrities like Justin Bieber, et cetera. And there's a line in her column where she goes like, well, I believe in like crystals. So if I like what what is crazier about me believing in crystals than them believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins? Like the idea of like believing in stuff that's not like, oh, science proves this is right. Um, but you just kind of believe that it's true or likely anyways is not something that is, you know, Every generation has has pieces of that. What they believe in may be different. That how that may look may change. Um, but whether you're believing in extraterrestrial life or the meaning of life or what have you, um, things that you cannot see but nonetheless believe are possible or believe are having influence, that is something that I wrote about in the selfie vote and transcends generations. Wow, that's very interesting. And by the way, before we wrap up, the New York Times profile of Marianne Williamson, she says, why does everyone joke about crystals? I don't use crystals. Like that was was like a a quote I liked from that. So she's being unfairly linked to the crystal industrial complex? Yes. So I don't know if that's part of your (laughs) Marianne Williamson slack channel <laughs> that you have going on in your head but you can add that add, that's some fodder for you for you and your compatriots Fantastic. to discuss <laughs> okay so what is on the trend line this week uh so hoping to we're, we're still working on getting folks booked but i am hoping that we will get lord ashcroft on the phone calling us from across the pond to talk to us about what in the heck is going on in the UK with regards to Brexit? And <laughs> I think cool. he's got some new research out of um, out of Northern Ireland, which I have become quite fascinated by because I watch I have watched Dairy Girls on uh, on Netflix. Have you heard of this show, Margie? 
I've heard about it, and I've not gotten to it yet. So my, my husband was out of town uh, a week or two ago, and I did some serious, like, Netflix binging. I watched all of Fleabag at Margie's recommendation. Right? It's good, right? I watched and then I watched it all again. Like, after it's you really sort good. of, like, know how it ends, like, going back and rewatching it, definitely deserves a rewatch. But Dairy Girls is fabulous. Have you heard of this show yet? I've heard of it, but I don't know enough about it to know. So it's it's basically a show about girl, like it's set in I think like 1994 of like high high schoolers in 1994 in Northern Ireland who are ex- who are like go to an all girls Catholic school and are just like experiencing life as you know it's it's like normal high school trials and tribulations set in the backdrop of like they are working class Catholics living in Northern Ireland during like the latter portion of the troubles, the, the right. you know, political conflict there. Yep. So it's not like a highly political, you know, thriller or whatever. This is not the bodyguard. This is like them having debates about what they're going to wear to prom. But like the 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 violence and civil unrest of Northern Ireland is like the but backdrop. But it's the guy the, from the bodyguard in it because that's my basically no, my standard of whether or not I'm going to like something in it or not. Thus far, who knows? <laughs> well, if they do then it falls three, a little further down eternal. the list. <laughs> I have to get through his entire catalog before I have room for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> what was the movie that he popped up in that you he saw? Was him in in? Yes, he was in Rocket Man. Yes, he was in Rocket Man, and I was like, "Who is this guy?" I'm like, "Oh, it's that guy again." <laughs> oh, it's you. <laughs> that was very. This is very exciting. It was a nice surprise on my transatlantic flight. <laughs> well, I, I highly recommend Dairy Girls. If you're, it, it's like each episode's twenty two minutes. You know, the season it's 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 about the same time commitment that Fleabag is, um, and it's excellent. So okay, I have that. I have that room. That I have room for. Yes. Um, okay. Well, I think that's all. Hopefully, if you book him by the time the show airs, there will not completely be like ten different crazy events happening in the UK by between recording time and airtime because it seems incredibly volatile. Yes. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, Radio. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be fantastic. All right. So thanks. Um, thanks, everybody. And make sure to leave us reviews and we read your tweets and you can find us and follow us, you know, all the same, usual channels. I don't say that part. Kristen says that part. I don't know why I stepped on that. But, um, but we're they always. They know where to find us. <laughs> they know where to find us. Okay. Thanks. Bye.